Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to cover in this audio verses 16 through 32. In the first half, the first 15 verses of Romans 1, Paul introduces himself to the Roman church and he explains to them why he was, even though he was extremely eager to come to see them, he hadn't managed to do so yet. And in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. And again, that might be referring to Romans who are not saved, or maybe he's talking about teaching the good news to Romans who are already saved. But at any rate, he wants to go to Rome to preach. I suspect he wants to preach to those who are not saved because of the context here, starting in verse 16, where we will begin. The context is, I got to preach the gospel to non-believing Gentiles. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. That goes right with verse 15, where he says, I am eager to preach the good news to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's referring to the fact, I think, that even in the capital of the Roman Empire, where, which is a logical place for one to be a little shy about preaching, even in that place, where there's a whole lot of pagan and governmental opposition, even in that place... He's not ashamed to preach the gospel. And when he says he's not ashamed, that means he's bold, he's not timid, he's not afraid. And as Hendrickson, the commentator, says that Paul wanted the Romans to know that his delay in coming to see them had nothing to do with the fear of preaching the gospel. He's, he's not afraid of preaching the gospel. He just got held up providentially by other matters. For example, taking the Jerusalem offering, poor offering, back to Jerusalem. Paul later says in Romans 10, verse 11, Now the scripture says, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. So Paul is, he's, he's talking about the, the courage it took to preach the gospel in a very, very hostile world. And I'm telling you, the world today in so-called Christian America is getting more and more hostile to Christianity. I just saw something on the Internet, one of these comments, it's the creepy Christians who do this. People are openly mocking the faith now in America, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. You don't have to be a prophet to know that. Well, but we believe everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. They're not going to put us down just because things are getting hard, and things were hard in Rome, but Paul's not a word about it. It took courage to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, Paul says to the, to the Corinthians, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolish to the, foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jews hear Jesus, and they say, Throw Paul in jail. Turn him over to the Romans. Let's kill him. Let's hire some assassins and ambush him. And foolishness to the Gentiles. So Paul goes to Athens, where the Gentiles live, the philosophers of Athens, and they laugh at him on Mars Hill. But Paul's not ashamed of that because it is God's power for salvation. Everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the, to the Greek. Now, what does that mean? Why, do the, why are the Jews first? Well, it could be they were first in the time, in time, because obviously the old covenant is before the new covenant. But it also could be first in privilege. In fact, it probably means both. The Jews were, were first both in time and in privilege. They were the ones who first had the opportunity to know Yahweh, to know God the Father, the creator of the world. Of course, they blew it, but they were the first to know. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. Why were the Jews first? Well, the Messiah was a Jew. Here's some scriptures that talk about the Jews being first in the order of salvation. John 4:22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. That's a Samaritan woman stating which is obvious which which was obvious to everybody salvation comes from the jews romans 3 2 first they the jews were entrusted with the spoken words of god or oracles of god they had the scriptures the old testament scriptures the, the law the writings the prophets romans 9 4 through 5 they are israelites and to them belong the adoption 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, the fathers are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Messiah, who is God over all, praise forever. So yeah, the Jews had a lot of options, a lot of advantages, which of course they squandered, but salvation came to them first. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You notice Jerusalem and Judea are listed first, because that's where the witness came first. Pentecost happened amongst Jews in Jerusalem, and then later on, by the time you get to Acts 8, the gospel had spread out to the Gentiles and to, to the Samaritans. Now, the Jews were first not because of some reasons that are wrong. For example, they were not first because of their superior merit. They were not superior to anybody in their holiness. In fact, they were quite sinful, as any reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament will prove to you. They are not first because God is partial to them. God loves Jews more than Gentiles. No. The gospel had to invade the world through somewhere. God had to get his message into this the burning hulk of impiety and rebellion that the world was, and so he picked one place to do it. So the gospel came first to the Jews, but as the NIV Study Bible points out, the Jews were obligated to get the gospel spread around to the rest of the world. Instead, they killed the Messiah. And not only that, we note that the Jews were not only first in salvation, they were first in judgment. Romans 2.9 says this, affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So affliction and distress comes first to the Jew. For great rank comes great responsibilities, as they say. Now Paul here in verse 16 of Romans says that the gospel is the good news. The gospel is God's power for salvation. Salvation. Salvation by faith is the theme of the whole book, as NIV Study Bible says. Now when you hear the word salvation, that implies there's something to be saved from. Namely, sin and death. It is said that the hardest part of evangelism is not getting people saved, it's getting them lost, because many people have a hard time admitting they are a sinner. I always work on that first. To be honest with you, I don't know how deep their consciousness of sin was, but when I was witnessing to people mostly in China, I'd always start on, are you a sinner? Are you righteous or not? Oh, I'm a good person. Then I'd just say, well, have you ever lied to your mother? Yeah, okay, I'm a sinner. It didn't take them long to think they were a sinner, but I don't know how much contrition or remorse or angst they had about being a sinner, but I, I would get them to verbally admit they were a sinner all the time, so I don't know if that's, I'm not sure that, that might be an overstatement, because, you know, people do have, in fact, as we're going to see in this chapter, people have a conscience. They know that they violated their conscience, as we're going to see. These are, these are non-Christians who know that they've sinned. But anyway, we've got. To, if you're going to witness to somebody, you got to. If you're going to tell them about salvation, you got to tell them there's something they need to be saved from: their arrogance, their selfishness, their materialism, their idolatry, and so forth. Now, theological liberalism's lie is directly related to salvation. They don't think we need salvation. Let me give you the typical teaching of a liberal. This is from my good friend Steve Ackerson, who thinks about theological liberalism about as highly as I do, which is to say, not very much. Liberals say that people simply do not believe that they are under the wrath of God. Wrathless, don't talk about that. There is little conviction of sin. We don't talk about sin either. God is reduced to a slightly out-of-touch, benign grandfather figure who dotes over people. God is never critical. He never judges me. And he greatly appreciates any spare time that I can give him while I go out and chase money or chase women. Jesus' death on the cross had nothing to do with satisfying God's wrath against sin. Since God is love, there's no wrath for anyone, so God doesn't need to satisfy wrath by dying on the cross. 
The liberals say this, the Bible says God so loved the world, not that God so hated the world. It also says that whoever so believes in him shall have eternal life and shall not perish. So the implication there is if you don't believe in him, you're going to perish. That means die. They never mention that. Liberals don't. Liberals say everyone will go to heaven, regardless of his good or his bad deeds, or his bad deeds, or his faith or lack of faith. It doesn't matter. God loves us all. We're all going to heaven. Liberals say that Jesus' death on the cross was not propitiatory. It was not meant to appease an angry God. It is merely intended to show the extent of God's love for us. Oh, look how much he loves us. He died on the cross. There was no transaction there. There was no giving of a life for a life. There was no giving of Jesus' life for my life as a sinner. There was just an example. What is that in the moral theory of the atonement, I think the theologians say? It's nonsense. Liberals love it. Jesus came not to save us from our sins, but merely to announce that we are all already saved. We don't need to be saved from anything, especially not God's wrath. Oh, we wouldn't say that God would have wrath. Now, that would just be terrible. Well, these doomcoff liberals have never read Romans chapter 1, which, we get, which we're the last part of the chapter, which we're getting ready to do. Now, notice that the gospel is said to be God's power. This is in verse 16. The gospel is God's power for salvation. It's God's power. It's not human power. We cannot save ourselves. The power of salvation is from God, not us. Let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. When you say, can God make me become a Christian? I tell you, yes, for herein rests the power of the gospel. It does not ask your consent, but it gets it. It does not say, will you have it? But it makes you willing in the day of God's power. The gospel wants not your consent. It gets it. It knocks the enmity out of your heart. You say, I do not want to be saved. Christ says, you shall be. He makes our will turn around, and then you cry, Lord, save, or I perish. Good old Calvinist Charles Spurgeon there. Armenians can't talk like that. It's a shame if they would talk like that. I think we would have a lot greater results in evangelism. Now, in this verse, verse 16, Romans 1, Paul says that, the gospel of God is God's power for salvation. Everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Well, what Paul is going to do here, he's going to talk about why the Greeks are lost or the Gentiles are lost, the non-Jews are lost in chapter 1. And then in, verse two, in chapter 2, he's going to talk about why the Jews are lost. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about why everybody's lost. And then he's going to go back to Romans 9 and 11, and he's going to talk about the future of the Jews because so many Jews were not believing. A lot of people gave up on them. Now, you know that the gospel is God's power for salvation. How? To everyone who believes. So there's a condition we have to believe. Now, of course, I believe as a good Calvinist that the belief comes in a response, as Charles Spurgeon said, to God knocking the enmity out of my heart, making me regenerated, making me born again. And I say, oh, yes, Lord, I say I'm a sinner. I accept what you have done for me. I have free will, but the free will only is free to operate once the garbage is knocked out of my heart through irresistible grace, the eye in tulip. However... We do have to believe. It ain't automatic. I know Arminians and Calvinists will dispute on when the faith comes. Do you believe first and then salvation comes? Or, do you, or does the salvation come first and then the faith follows? I don't care whether you are an Arminian or Calvinist. Either, both of you have got to have faith to believe. And what is faith? That's the only requirement of salvation. Now, there are aspects of faith, for example, repentance, that comes along with it. But basically, belief is what you need to do in order to get saved. And by the way, believe is another word. It's a synonym, really, for have faith. Have faith to believe. And another aspect of belief is obedience, too. I realize there's a lot of theology there. People get really balled up on what does it mean to be saved by faith alone? What about repentance? What about obedience and all? It's all a part of faith. Believing in God, you'll get plenty of obedience. You believe in God, you'll get plenty of repentance. 
We go now to verse 17 of Romans 1. For in it, that's in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is, as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Now, what does this mysterious phrase, faith to faith, mean? Well, here's some options. The NIV says it's by faith from first to last, which I take to mean from the first point of belief of, a, of an individual Christian, when you believe as a baby Christian, all the way until when you die, faith to faith to faith, you believe all the way through one's individual life. And God's righteousness is revealed to that person all the way through his life. That's reasonable, but I don't think that's what it means. The NIV margin uh, translates it just as the Holman Christian Study Bible has. Instead of having by faith from first to last, the margin has from faith to faith, which is what the Holman Christian Study Bible has from faith to faith. And I take that to mean from one person saving faith to the next person saving faith to the next person saving faith until all the elect, the number of the elect, is filled up. Now Paul quotes an Old Testament verse when he talks about God's righteousness being revealed from faith to faith as one person believes and becomes righteous and another person believes and becomes righteous just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Look, his ego is inflated, he is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Now Paul may have quoted that here, that verse from Habakkuk, to show that his teaching concerning faith is compatible with the Old Testament. But that verse very clearly shows that salvation is by faith, not by works. And of course, people a lot of times think, well, if we're talking about salvation in the Old Testament, it's salvation by works. No, it is not. It is salvation by faith in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Salvation by belief, by faith. Now, Habakkuk lived in difficult times, and yet he still believed. We read in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 18, Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I would love to see how the Copeland Haganites deal with that verse that you believe even though there's not Rolex watches and airplanes and fast boats to show for it. Now back at 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament once here, Romans 1.17, and also in Galatians 3.11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith, Paul tells the Galatians. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. Now there's another question here. What does it mean to live by faith? Does that mean to be to come alive by faith, to be born again at the point of your salvation, or does it mean to live your whole faith life by faith? In other words, does it include sanctification as well as justification? Or does it include both? My opinion is it includes both. You get saved by faith and you get sanctified by faith. You live by faith from the time you're born again to the time you die. You live by faith. You have to believe in God. If you don't believe in God, you've got nothing. We go to Romans verse 18, chapter 1. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, Paul is going to talk about people's unrighteousness. He's going to start with the Gentiles in verses 18 through 32, which we're getting ready to look at. And then he's going to talk about the Jews in Romans 2, 1, verses 3, 8, the unrighteousness of the Jews. And then in Romans 3, 9 through 20, he's going to talk about the unrighteousness of both the Gentiles and the Jews. That summary outline is given by the NIV Study Bible. Now, God's wrath is revealed. Of course, that's what we need salvation from is God's wrath. 
We read some scriptures about wrath in Psalms 2, verse 12. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry with you or wrathful with you, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him him are happy. His anger may ignite at any moment. That's that's the anger of the Son, the wrath of the Son. John 3.36 The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So that means anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus has the wrath of God on him. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it, theological liberals. You, the liberals, as, pl- as well as everybody else on this planet who do not have Jesus, the salvation and redemption offered by Jesus, accounted to their account. Go, they have the wrath of God on their head. They're enemies of God. That's bad business. Here's some definitions. Ac- my friend Steve Ackerson defines it. He says, in humans, wrath is an internal emotion, an agitation of the soul. An, e- an internal emotion, an agitation of the soul. But Bauer-Audrick, B-A-G-D, the B-A-G-D Greek lexicon, the famous one, says, with God, wrath is more to do with judgment than an emotion. The NIV Study Bible says this, wrath is, is, quote, not a petulant, irrational burst of anger, such as humans often exhibit, but a holy, just revulsion against what is contrary to and opposes his holy nature and will. Thayer's lexicon says wrath is anger and indignation, or it's the punishment that results from that anger. The new... The New Bible Dictionary says that wrath is the attitude of God towards sin. And John Gill says, quote, wrath is, the, is, quote, the indignation of God at sin and sinners, his punitive justice and awful vengeance, the judgments which he executes in this world, and that everlasting displeasure of his. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that wrath is, quote, his holy displeasure and righteous vengeance against sin. Now, all of this, of course, is in the New Testament we're talking about now. Wrath in the New Testament. That should knock in the head the mistaken idea that the Old Testament shows a God of wrath and the New Testament is a God of love. Now, you talk about myths. You hear people say that all the time. It's the same God, folks, in both Testaments. As Barclay says, if it was a different God in both the New and the Old Testament, we could say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate God because he's just a God of wrath. No, God is not just a God of wrath in the Old Testament. There's love in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18, the famous verse in the Old Testament, that says this, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which of course is quoted as part of the summary of the whole Old Testament by Jesus in the New Testament. And on Conversely, in the New Testament, we also have wrath. The New Testament does not have just love. It also has wrath. Think of all the times Jesus spoke about hell, where the worm turns and never dies. Now, verse 18 of Romans 1 says that this wrath of God is revealed from heaven. How is it revealed from heaven? Well, here's some options. It could be revealed in the consciences of men, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown also say that Wrath could be revealed in the moral exercise of punishment by governments. I say that it could be revealed in the judgments of God through external historical events like World War II, like Hiroshima, things like that. NIV Study Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed against sin because of end-time judgment of the wicked. And also the NIV Study Bible says the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness 
because of the abandonment or by the abandonment of the wicked to their sins. And they reap what they sow, and the sin has its natural effect in the person's life. But at any rate, however the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness, sin will not be overlooked. Now, this wrath is against people that are, that are godless and unrighteous. Godless and unrighteous. What's the definition of godlessness? It's a lack of reverence towards God. As Steve Ackerson says, I wonder is OMG on social media, does that count as lack of reverence toward God? I am so tired of seeing that. I know you could say, oh my gosh, it stands for that, but that's not the way people mean it. They say, oh my God, oh my God, all the time. Just act like God is nothing. Total lack of respect and reverence toward God. And Christians do this, OMG, OMG. Another definition of godliness is impiety. No respect for God. What does unrighteousness mean? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. Righteousness has the idea of justice, so unrighteousness means the idea of injustice. Those two words are very close to each other in English, righteousness and justice. So unrighteousness means there's no justice done. Just like when you see a criminal get away with murder in a court system, it's injustice. Or when the court makes a mistake and condemns somebody who's innocent, it's injustice. It's a it's serious business. People really hate it. Now, Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed against all godliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How do they suppress the truth? Well, the NIV Study Bible says the truth that Paul is talking about here is the truth about God is revealed in the creation order, because that's what he's talking about in the last half of Romans chapter 1. You look at the stars and you know that God created them. We'll get to that in a minute. And so when non-believers look at the stars and the sky and all of the wonders of science and all that stuff, and they say, ah, there's no God, it's just random chance, the wrath of God is going to be revealed against that attitude. The wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of people by whom their unrighteousness suppress the truth, suppress the truth that there is a God who made all this, and it's not just a product of time plus chance. Now, you notice they're suppressing the truth. That means they are working hard at not having to face their God. Now, why do people not want to admit that there's a God? Because then they would have to admit that God is righteous and they're sinners and they can't live their sinful life their sinful way the way they want to. And there is nothing stronger than the desire of human beings to get what they want. They suppress the truth. They should know the truth from creation, as we will see in the verses following. But they deliberately reject that truth for idols, as we'll see in a little bit. And they also suppressed the truth not only from nature, but there were righteous men like Adam, Noah, Abraham in Old Testament Jewish history, which I guess the Gentiles wouldn't have had access to. But the Jews would suppress the testimony of earlier righteous people too. But everybody's suppressing the knowledge that we have from creation. And this suppression of the truth started with Adam and Eve, and it's ongoing. It continues even today. Verses 18, 19, and 20 are in the present tense. They suppress, present tense, the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. We go to verse 19 of Romans 1. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, this is why they suppress the truth, because it should be evident to them, and yet they won't admit it. It's evident to them. What can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. Now, what can be known by the light of nature? We can know that God exists and that there's only one God. There's lots of people who believe that God exists and that there's only one God, but they don't believe in Jesus, but they at least know that God lives. Now, what cannot be known by the light of nature, this is all according to John Gill. We can't know the Trinity. We can't know Christ as mediator. We can't know Jesus as both God and man, the hypostatic union, 
We can't know that it is the will of God to save sinners by a crucified Jesus. We cannot know of Jesus' incarnation, his sufferings, his death and resurrection. We cannot know the truth of the resurrection of the dead. All of that is spiritually revealed. So you got, or specially revealed, I should say. So we have natural revelation, which comes from nature. We, from that we know that God exists, there's only one God. And then we have special revelation, all the spiritual stuff, all the scriptural stuff, the Trinity, Jesus is mediator, Jesus is God, man, and so forth. This, of course, is what Thomas Aquinas was big on, talking about the difference. Reason will get you so far, then when you want to get from reason, reason will get you to the point where God exists, but then if you want to know who God is and who Jesus is, you've got to have scripture and you have to have a leap of, not a leap of faith, you have to have a step of faith, let's put it that way. Now, the truth of God is evident that that God exists, what can be known about God exists, and that is evident. What can be known about God, that he, is, that he exists, and that is evident. We can see from scriptures such as Job 32, verse 8, but it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty, the breath of the Almighty that give him understanding. But it is a spirit in man, in other words, his, his soul, his spirit. And the breath of the Almighty, God gives us his spirit, gives us a spirit. And that spirit has understanding. We know that there's a God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 he has put eternity into man's heart. God has put knowledge of himself in us. And if you don't recognize what he has put in us, that means you are actively suppressing that truth, and you are going to, therefore, thereby experience the wrath of God, i.e. hell. Now, of course, I realize that most wussy-pussy evangelical Christians don't like to talk about hell and the wrath of God, but it's there. They claim they believe the Bible. All of it's inspired. All of it is for edification, reproof, and correction. But how many times do you listen to the typical wussy-pussy evangelical preacher talk about Romans chapter 1 and about the wrath of God resting on the heads of God's enemies, people who are not saved yet? You don't hear it. Now, how is that which it can be known about God is evident? How can that be shown to them? Because it, Romans one nineteen says God has shown it to them. That which can be known about God is shown to the create to people in the world. How? Well, John Gill says there's two ways that that which can be known about God is shown to people. First is works of creation, and second is providence. First of all, works of creation, as Adam Clark says, quote, the visible beauty, order, and operations observable in the Constitution and parts of the universe. I, just last week, I held my cell phone up to the woods and the stars, not the stars, I'm sorry, the sky, and I was witnessing to a Chinese person in China, and I said, now look at this, look at this, tell me where did that come from? And of course, I don't get an answer. But I just keep, you know, come on now, don't be silly. Where did that come from? Did just, just get here? And then when she started giving me grief about that, I said, okay, well, where'd you come from? So I used that on another guy up in Chicago I was witnessing to over using WeChat. And he was an intellectual, you know. Intellectuals are real smart. They think they know everything. And so he was saying, he goes on and on and on. And I said, let me ask you something. Where did the world come from? Well, that came from pre-existing materials. And you know, I said, okay. Where did the pre-existing materials come from? And then he, he wrote back and said, well, you know, that is sort of hard to answer, but, you know, and he's still struggling. He's reading C.S. Lewis, but he's still struggling because he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The other way that we know that God exists, how does he show us that he exists is providence. The fact that the world is, is perfectly and scientifically fitted for human life, whereas no other planet in the universe is, or no other rock in the universe is suited for us. That's providence. That's him taking care of the human race. 
And not only that, how about the providence in Christians' lives when he straightens up their life? I love doing that. I've talked to a couple of Christians recently who God has taken from the pits, I mean the absolute pits, and has set their foot upon a rock and started blessing their lives, and they know that God's real. I can think of three right now. So we know that God exists. Now, of course, that's providence for believers, but providence for unbelievers is, hey, where's this? why is it that the seasons operate so that there's rain when we need it? And the earth grows food when we need it. Otherwise, we could just be living like on the moon and die. Romans 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, Paul continues, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Folks, if you are a pagan and you are in Africa or somewhere else where there's no gospel being preached, let's say out in the far west of China might be a better place where nothing but Muslims and indigenous religions out there, and you look up at the sky, you are without excuse because you've got to know that there's a God to put those stars up there. And if instead of that, you're going to go run to an idol or whatever it is you're going to run to, and you turn your back on the God who made all those stars, well, then you are without excuse. But if on the other hand, you say, I know there's a God up there that made it, then you start praying to that God, please reveal yourself to me. Guess what? He's going to do it. He might send a wandering missionary. There's no telling how he's going to do it. He might send a vision. He might come to you in a dream. I don't know how he's going to come to you, but he will reveal himself to you. But if you're going to insist that all those things up in the heavens got there by chance and you're not going to try to find out who put them up there, then you're without excuse. Because God's eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, not just seen, but clearly seen since the creation of the world. This, of course, is natural revelation. The Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. The creation of the world is proof enough. Just look around you, folks. I remember I used this argument on a assistant of mine when I was teaching college in China, and she was an atheist. And I said, let me ask you something. Where did all those stars come from? It was nighttime, so I point. And she said, she didn't, she didn't know. I said, well, don't you want to know? She says, no, the scientists will know. The scientists will tell me. And I felt like saying, well, where did the scientists come from? You know, she's suppressing the truth. The scriptures say in Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. The heavens are preaching to you folks, preaching to you non-believers who have the wrath of God on your heads. There's the glory of God is out there. It had to be a glorious God that made those heavens and, and the sky, which is parallel with heavens. The heavens proclaim the work of his hands. They say, and look, God has done this. You're without excuse if you look at that. Now, of course, this. This is the, the answer to all those non-believers who say, God's just not fair. He didn't send a witness to the people in Africa, the pagan, old pagans in Africa question. Of course, there's more Christians down in, in Africa than there are in America now, ironically enough. Likewise in China, but it used to be pagans in Africa and pagans in China. Listen, God doesn't have to be fair to anybody. He could be perfectly fair by sending every last one of us to hell for what we've done. And you say, but I can't be held responsible for what Adam did. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I mean, legally, you're responsible for the debts of your parents. Same thing in theology, folks. Your parents did something, and then you go do something. Adam does something. Sins of the flesh, sins of the world, sins of the eyes. And then you do the same thing, and you're saying, well, it's not fair because Adam made me do it. That's not going to fly. You did it. We all have done it. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we have the wrath of God on our heads, and we're enemies of God. We're without excuse. I don't care whether you've had... A thousand missionaries in front of you or no missionaries in front of you. The creation tells you that there's a God that you should have 
asked about. He would have revealed himself to you. Verse 21 of Romans 1. For though they knew God, that means non-believers, Gentile non-believers, for though they knew God, that means they knew about God, they knew that God exists. That doesn't mean they know God personally, obviously, because they didn't. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. And how did their thinking become nonsense? It's because they started doing idolatry. Now, even though this world is tough and sinful and full of sin because of what we did, because of our rebellion, nonetheless, we're supposed to show gratitude. Paul here in Romans one twenty one says they did not know God, they didn't glorify him as God, and they didn't show gratitude. Acts 14.17 says this, He did not leave himself without a witness. He, God, did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and happiness. Look, if it wasn't for God, you wouldn't have a potato to put in your mouth. You better thank God for the fact that you even have breath to breathe. No, it's all what mankind has done. That's what the typical pagan says. And when people turn from God... This is what inevitably happens. Their thinking becomes nonsense. You ought to look at the non-Christian culture in America today. The people who are openly antichrist, the things that they advocate are beyond human belief. Homosexual marriage, throuples, open marriages. Pederasty is next. Incest is next. Because once they start on that downward spiral, non-believers do not know how to stop and they get totally wrapped up in their sin and their thinking becomes nonsense and their senseless minds becomes darkened. Their thinking becomes nonsense. That means that their thinking becomes vain, empty, useless. The ESV and the NIV say is futile. Their thinking becomes worthless, useless. Adam Clark says even the wisest philosophers speak nonsense. And that's the truth. I just read nine or yeah, nine volumes of Frederick Copleston's History of Philosophy, just to get an overview of all the Western philosophy since the pre-Socratic philosophers. And I'm telling you, there were some of them that are fairly good, but most of them are full of excrement, full of stupidity, vain, stupid, idiotic stuff, dressed up in fancy language. I remember I was listening to a podcast by a nuclear scientist, or about a nuclear scientist. Well, it was, it was by a nuclear scientist talking about his his association with, and I can't remember the, 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 the physicist's name. He's one of these particle physicists, very famous guy, guy that named the quark. And he said that this guy took a visit from philosophers, philosophers of science, and he said they sat there and listened to a bunch of philosophy and didn't know what they were talking about. And I said, well, that's great. And actually, I did because I just read all that Copleston's uh, books on philosophy so i understood as the as was re, what was related in this podcast what was related to me or this uh, youtube video about what these philosophers were saying i understood what they were saying but the nuclear physicist didn't i said oh this is something i understand something that a rocket scientist does not understand well the reason i the reason that the physicist didn't understand it is because it was nonsense and he told him he just looked at the guy and says hey what you're talking is nonsense Philosophy ends up in nonsense so quick it's not even funny. 1 Corinthians 3.20 The Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. Now this is not to be any intellectual. Paul was an intellectual. He knew Greek philosophy. He knew Hebrew scriptures out, coming out of his ears. This is not an excuse for students not to study. I mean the Bible says, says study to show yourself approved in the God. That means you've got to study the scriptures. Nothing wrong with studying. It's what you study and what you believe. It's just like anything else. Freedom without God becomes license. 
Caring for the poor without God becomes socialist stupidity and poverty and tyranny. And likewise, thinking without God becomes vain and stupid philosophy. Now, when you don't show gratitude to God, your senseless mind becomes darkened. What this shows is, is that at root, all intellectual problems are heart problems. Now, I used to be a nerd, and I had a, hard, a lot of times, hard time believing the Bible. Had all those doubts. What about the pagans in Africa? What about evolution? All that stuff. Why? Is, it's just not fair that God puts some people in hell and some people not. It's just not fair. And on and on and on. I had all those questions. And one day, I had this revelation. You know, if I would just submit myself to Christ, he'll explain all that stuff to me. And I tell pinheads, nerds, shudaisas, as they call them in Chinese, jershafenzas, intellectuals. I, you know, I, I run into these people all the time because I was a college professor. And I would say, look, you're having trouble believing it ain't because you ain't smart enough. It's because you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and you have turned your back on God, and you are not grateful to him. If you would be grateful to him and give your heart to him, then he would explain things in, so that your head is satisfied. Heart first, head second. Here's the great verse that shows this, John 7, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. What comes first? Willing correctly and then knowing correctly? Or knowing correctly and then willing correctly? Do I need to know everything about God before I can make my heart right so I can will to follow him? No. You have to be willed to follow him first and then you'll know the truth. Because Jesus says, I am the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 21 of Romans 1 says that the senseless minds of these people who don't show gratitude to God, their, mind, their senseless minds becomes darkened. John 3:19 verse 20 says the same thing. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People always like to do crime at night. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. And of course, dark versus light is a common theme in the New Testament. It's everywhere if you ever sit down and collect the verses. But at any rate... People who reject God have a dark mind. They don't know the truth. We go to verses 22 and 23 of Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's people who reject God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. They claimed to be wise because they claimed to be idolaters. They were idolaters, and they say, look here, worship this God. And you know, there was a lot of smart people in ancient Greece that believed all that stuff about Dionysius and Zeus and Hermes and Hera. And I've, I've been listening to a Greek podcast and been getting into a lot of Greek mythology, and those gods rape people all the time. They murdered people. They ripped people apart. They were evil. But, oh, the great philosophers, the great people. Now, some of the philosophers started dumping on the gods by the end of the 5th century B.C., but at the beginning of the 5th century B.C., at the beginning of the, let's say, the 6th and the early part of the 5th century B.C., most everybody believed in those gods. And even at the end there, Socrates never said anything bad about him, maybe because he was worried about what might happen to him. He eventually got killed because people thought he was speaking against the gods, but he never did, really, because that adultery had a strong hold on people's minds, that polytheism, all those mythological gods. And then that, it spread from Rome, and then it went uh, from Greece, and then it went to Rome. So you had all these wise people, these big shots, claiming to be wise, but they were fools. Why? Because they worshipped idols made in the shape of animals they resembled mortal man because a lot of times they would make a bird make him look like a man put a face on him a four-footed animal then the man stands up like a man reptiles and sometimes they were completely animals if you 
Look at the history of idolatry. Look at those idols. How about Cybele or Astarte, the many-breasted one? It's probably the mother goddess. Cybele in Phrygia, Astarte in Phoenicia, Baal's consort in Phoenicia, and then uh, Osiris in Egypt. And if you look at the pictures, they're absolutely hideous. Astarte has about 50 to 100 breasts and that kind of stuff. It's just incredible how intelligent people could believe such nonsense. Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, he was no dummy. But yet he believed all this stuff about the idols. These wise people, in their own eyes wise, they became fools. The Greek for that is morino, which is moron. They became morons. That Greek word, according to Thayer, means blame, disgrace, blemish, or insult. They became people who were blameworthy, who were disgraceful, who were blemished, who should be insulted. Now, by the way, they became fools. This does not contradict Jesus' teaching that we are never to call people fools. I don't have the verse in front of me, but you know, he says, you call somebody rock a fool, you'll be, in guilt, you'll be guilty of hellfire. He was referring to people who didn't deserve to be called fools. They are in existence people who richly deserve to be called fools. And Romans 1 verse 22 refers to such as these, people who claim to know everything, and yet they're stupid enough to worship idols. They, at the proper time, should be called fools, and Paul calls them fools. Now, you're not supposed to call somebody a fool who's not a fool. That's disrespectful and hurtful and sinful. Now, how about Socrates? Now, he never claimed to be wise, actually. He says that the reason the oracle at Delphi said he was so wise is because he was, he was the wisest man of all, and Socrates couldn't figure out why the oracle said that. And finally, he figured out, it says, the reason that everybody thinks I'm so wise is because I know that I don't know everything. I'm actually humble about what I know. So Socrates is probably not a good example but in any way he is you know par excellence the great philosopher he asserted the unity of god whoa he knew that there was only one god despite all the polytheism polytheism around him he died a martyr to the truth and yet one of his last acts was asking his friend crito to sacrifice a cock to asclepius asclepius i can't pronounce the greek god of healing i think he was but that's a famous thing. He got a cock. He's just about to die from the hemlock. He wants to go get somebody to sacrifice a cock to a god. So even he, as wise as he was, acted like a fool at the very end. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. The world did not know God through wisdom. In God's wisdom the world did not know God through human wisdom. So God was pleased to save those who believe. Notice the belief is put in contradistinction to wisdom. You believe you have wisdom, false human wisdom in your mind, but you have godly belief in your heart. And there is a contradiction between those two and a conflict and a battle. So if you are a pinheaded Christian listening to this and you're seduced by intellectualism, get over it, buddy. Get over it. You're wasting your life. Now, these foolish people who ended up being idolaters, and worshiping images, they exchanged the glory of God for images, glory of the immortal God for images which, of course, die as they are destroyed. Those were ancients, and they had metal images, but now we have mental images. That nice little turn of phrase comes from my friend Steve Ackerson, who loves such verbal expressions. What are some of our modern idols? Money, fame, success, science, sports, music, romance, and sex, ecology, all going to Turn to dust and be blown away with the wind. Gone with the wind, never coming back again. Now these images resemble mortal man. Here's a good quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And when they had formed their gods according to the human shape, they endowed them with human passions. 
and as they clothe them with attributes of extraordinary strength, beauty, wisdom, etc., not having the true principles of morality, they represented them as slaves to the most disorderly and disgraceful passions, excelling in irregularities, the most profligate of men as possessing unlimited powers of sensual gratification. Now, that's put in, in a fancy way. If you read Greek mythology, I mean, Zeus is screwing everybody in sight, sometimes with their permission and sometimes without. And Hera spends all of her life tracking down the illegitimate kids of Zeus, tracking down Zeus and trying to figure out ways to get back at him and persecuting and destroying and killing Zeus's mistresses. Oh, yeah, you want to see mankind at its best? Read Greek mythology. We go to Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Now here we see that idolatry, not showing gratitude toward God, turning you back on God, leads to idolatry, and idolatry leads to sexual impurity. You want to see a, a culture turn against God? Just look at their sexual ethics. They have no sexual ethics. You can find the root of it. They've turned it back on God. And that refers to America to the max. Now, notice that God delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity. In other words, they had lust for sexual impurity. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. But notice that God delivered them over. God let their sin run its natural course as an act of judgment. You want to fornicate? You want to be a homosexual? You want to be a, have sex with an animal? You want to get into a thruple or a thumple or whatever you call it? You want to be an adulterer? Go right ahead and your life will be destroyed. It's just a matter of time. It might feel good for the moment. But it's like drugs. You know, they might feel good at first when you smoke it, but after you get addicted to it and after it destroys your life, or like alcohol, you're sorry you ever got started with it. Well, sexual impurity leads to degradation. Sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Degradation, is that what you want? Go shack up with somebody or something, or some bodies with somebody that's not your wife or your husband, and see where it leads you. Watch movies, read books, even modern ones, you know. Typically, at least, not always. Of course, they try to glorify it in modern movies, but there's a lot of times where it ain't so glorified. So the cravings of their hearts means that the sinners want sexual impurity, so you can't blame God for delivering them over to it. The cravings of their hearts, they want it. God gives people what they want. This is what sinners want, sexual impurity. They get what they want, and they get what they want destroys them. So that when they get judged, it's nobody's fault but their own. It's not God's fault. Of course, God does the judgment, but it's perfectly condigned judgment. By the way, that therefore in verse 24 means therefore because people have turned over to, uh, they've exchanged the glory of God for idolatry. Therefore, because of that reason, God delivered them over to sexual immorality, sexual impurity. Now, what is sexual impurity? As anytime you have sex with somebody who's not your wife. That's the easiest way to define that. It could be, there's all kinds of, you could be before you got married, that's fornication. After you get married with somebody else, that's adultery. It could be with somebody besides your wife at the same time with her, like a threesome. That's sexual immorality. It could be like an orgy, sexual immorality. It could be like having sex with a beast, an animal, having sex with somebody and you're not married and you get married and you have sex with somebody of the same sex. That's sexual immorality. Lots of ways to do that, folks. It all leads to degradation. And since sex is a physical act, that means and when you sin with sex, that means you are sinning against your own body and you're degrading it. You're ruining it. You think of all the the physical ailments of people who don't have who don't keep themselves sexually pure. I did a PowerPoint presentation in China to a bunch of college students about what happens when they shack up with one another with a so-called trial marriage. And I showed pictures of all the sexual 
transmitted diseases that you could get. I got on Wikipedia, and oh my gosh, people with warts all over their body and all these horrible-looking stuff, and I watched them go, oh, God, this Well, hey, their bodies were degraded. They did it. They didn't have to do it. People that that only have sex with their lawful spouses, they this stuff never happens to them, unless they were sexually immoral beforehand. But I'm, from the beginning, if they, from the time that if they're a virgin and get married and keep themselves sexually pure, they ain't, they've got zero fear of AIDS, zero fear of a sexually transmitted disease. Now, gee, I wonder why that is. I wonder if it has something to do with that's the way God made us and that he has hedged sexuality uh, with marriage to keep all the crap out, all the diseases out. And then if you're going to go outside the boundaries, well, you're going to have to live with the diseases. We go to verse 25 of Romans 1. They, these are people, idolaters, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They not only exchange the glory of God for, for sexual immorality, they not only exchange the glory of God for images, I should say, in verses 22, 23, idols, they exchange the glory of God for idols. They also exchange the truth of God for a lie, which is, is a different way of saying the same thing. They worshiped and served something created instead of the creator. The created thing is the idol who is instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Amen means so be it. Or indeed it is so. I noticed that these men exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't exchange the truth of the gospel because they didn't know the truths of the gospel. But they did know that truth that Paul earlier mentioned, which is that there is a creator God who created the universe. They know it, it says. They suppress that truth in unrighteousness, but they know that there's a God out there, and they suppress it and exchange that truth for a lie because they start worshiping idols. Here's a couple of scriptures which label idolatry as a lie. Jeremiah 10:14. Everyone is stupid and ignorant. Every goldsmith is put to shame. That's a goldsmith who's making an idol. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his carved image, for his cast images are a lie. There's no breath in them. That's not a god. It's a lie. It's a stupid statue. Jeremiah 13, verse 25. This is your lot, what I have decreed for you. This is the Lord's declaration, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes that falsehood with an F. You have trusted in idolatry. Falsehood. It's not true. Romans 1.26. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. Because of their idolatry. That's what the this refers to. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie in verse 25, which is referring to their idolatry. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and verse 26, this is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. In other words, it's their own fault. It's because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God's not, not willy-nilly, egregiously torturing people because he's angry at them. No, it's, it's, it's called justice. God delivered them over to degrading passions. I already mentioned their bodies are degraded. Now their passions are degrading. For even their females exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Now that word females could mean wives or it could be women, not their wives. I believe, in my opinion, it's not their wives. They didn't exchange their, their wives became lesbians. I don't think so. I think it's just talking about women in general. Some women in general became lesbians. Exchange natural sexual relations, that means heterosexual relations, for unnatural ones. Notice that homosexuality is called unnatural. And nature, even, even nature itself tells you that's not right. The best argument against homosexuality is to put a picture of a naked man and a naked woman up and say, look at this, look at where the parts go. Now, you telling me that homosexuality is natural? It's not even natural. I mean, you have to have the Bible to tell you that. Probably if this thing is recorded somewhere, I imagine I'm going to get labeled as a somebody that's preaching hate. And I'm going to be called up for some human rights commission as as a hate criminal. And maybe I might get the audio taken down off of YouTube or off of wherever it is off the platform that's serving it because 
I've said something that's an inconvenient truth. It's full of hate. No, I don't hate people. I hate sin that destroys people. And God doesn't hate people either. He turned them over to degrading passions because that's what their craving heart wanted. It was as a result of their actions. They chose this stuff, this unnatural lust. One would wonder why in the world would people want to exchange degrading unnatural passions and activities which degrade the flesh. Why would you want to sanctify that and call it marriage? Only a corrupt, perverted, Sodom and Gomorrah country would do that. Oops, I believe the Supreme Court did that, did they not? In the United States of America, in the United States of God bless America, the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Obergefell decision. Well, the, whole, the United States Supreme Court doesn't care about God, obviously. Well, let's look at some scriptures that talk about homosexuality. Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning greatly against the Lord. And we know that's where Sodomite comes from. The word sodomy comes from. People of Sodom, Sodom were homosexuals. Genesis 18, 20 through 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. Not just a little sin, folks. It's a serious sin, and... Get, get that myth out of your mind that all sins are equal. Oh, no, they're not. Murder is very serious. And less serious than murder, but more serious than most sins, is homosexuality. It's a big sin because it degrades people. It degrades their bodies. It degrades their passions. Their sin is extremely serious. Genesis 19, 4 through 7. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Those were angels. They thought they were men. Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Say the good homosexual citizens of Sodom. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. And, you know, homosexual Christians like to say, well, the evil was the violation of hospitality. Nonsense. It was homosexuality that was the evil. Genesis 19:13. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The outcry against what's place? Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to destroy it. Why? Because of the homosexuality there. Because the sin, the outcry against his people is so great. Leviticus 20:13. If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable thing. Homosexuality is marriage. No, it's a detestable thing. They must be put to death. Their blood is on their own hands. Well, thank God that the Old Testament law is done away with and we don't need to put homosexuals to death now. But it doesn't mean that the crime is not detestable. It was detestable back then. It's detestable now. In fact, we can go to the New Covenant right here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality. Paul says it right there. Now, these, these idiotic gay Christians, they metropolitan community church, they go around saying they can be homosexuals and Christians at the same time. Well, they can do that, but they can't be sane at the same time. They can't be rational. Or I guess they could just take the Bible and be a liberal and cut out the verses they don't like or try to explain the plain meaning of the verses away the way a good cultist would do. Homosexuality and Christianity is not compatible, and I don't give a ding-dong damn what the culture says about that. Notice the word exchange, for their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. They chose to do it. They exchanged their heterosexual passions for homosexual ones. They exchanged it. They did it. They weren't born that way. There's a lot of myth out there. I mean, this Pete Buttigieg or whatever his name is, a homosexual running for president, he, he complained to Mike Pence, the Christian vice president of America, and he said, why? How can you condemn me? I was born this way. No, you weren't, Pete. Mayor Pete, you weren't born that way. You chose to be that way. I did a talk on homosexuality 
one time did, looked at a bunch of research on this. In fact, if you can just look at Wikipedia, Wikipedia has all the opinions about where homosexuality comes from, and nobody knows. Well, I know where it comes from. It comes from a choice. Now, there are factors that lead to it, of course. I don't deny that. But if you're born that way, you know, some, some people are born more inclined to alcoholism. But even the law says it doesn't matter whether you're inclined to it or not. You've got to control it. And maybe, I'm not saying that this is not true, that might be true that there are some people more inclined to homosexuality because of genetic factors. It's never been proved, but maybe that's so. But even if it is, you still have the moral duty to control it. After all, every heterosexual I know is, or every heterosexual male that I know is inclined to have sex with every woman he sees that's got a shirt unbuttoned, but that don't make it right. If it was a matter of birth, if a homosexual can say, well, I, you know, I just can't help it. I was born that way. Then why does God condemn it? All these verses I just read, it's a detestable thing. It's degrading. It leads to degrading passions. It's unnatural. Why would God condemn something like that if you were born that way? He wouldn't do it. So obviously it's a sin. And again, let me point out again, God gave them over to the degrading passions, but it was the idolatry and the sexual impurity that led to the judgment that led to God delivering them over. He did not do it arbitrarily because he's some kind of unjust, mean God. In fact, he would love to get homosexual, homosexuals out of their sin, just like he loves to get adulterers out of their sin, just like he loves to get adulterers out of their sins, or drug addicts, or alcoholics, or whatever. He loves to get people out of their sins. It says here that the fe their females, uh, pagans, Gentiles, pe females, exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Here's a good quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Quote, that sex whose priceless jewel and fairest ornament is modesty, and which, when that is once lost, not only becomes more shameless than the other sex, but lives henceforth only to drag the other sex down to its level. Well, I don't know if lesbianism is more shameless than the other sex. I, I know most men, me included, somehow don't look at lesbianism as bad as, as uh, male, whatever you call male homosexuality. I've always, you know, it just doesn't bother me as much. But it's, it's equally sinful. I wouldn't say it's more sinful. Jameson Fawcett Brown said it's worse because of the idea that the corruption of the, of the best is the worst and that women are more civilized than men. So once, you, once you've corrupt a woman, you've really done something bad. I guess you could make that argument. But at any rate, one more point before we leave this verse. The females exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. What's an unnatural sexual relation? Well, of course, it's probably homosexual relations. The verse doesn't explicitly say that, however. The next verse, it talks about men, and it does say that men's homosexuality is unnatural. And so, just going by context, you would figure that this verse is talking about women's homosexuality is unnatural. John Gill says it could refer to immoral sex with men, not their husbands. In other words, adultery. So the women gave themselves over their natural sexual relations, their marital sexual relations for unnatural adulterous ones. I don't think so. It's talking about homosexuality. We go to verse 27. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Notice how what's connected with homosexuality is lust. Not lifetime commitment and love, but lust and inflammation. Males committed shameless act with males and received in their own person the appropriate penalty of the error. Now I'm going to talk about something. If you don't want to listen to it right now, you can skip it over. But every time I mention about what homosexuals do, a huge percentage of homosexuals do, according to that research I did, Christians go, oh no, 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 don't, don't talk to me about that. Okay. If you don't want to listen, don't listen. But you want to hear what a shameless act with a male is? How about fisting? When a homosexual balls up his fist and sticks it in the anus of another homosexual and then pushes his hands up through the internal organs of the other homosexual until his hand reaches the pubic bone of the other homosexual male. 
Is that a shameless act? Do you consider that natural or is that degrading? How about rimming, where one male homosexual gets his tongue and licks the anus of the other homosexual to, so he can get the feces off of it? Is it any wonder that homosexuals have poor, poor health? Is it any wonder at all? Oh, no, but we can't talk about that because, listen, homosexuals talk about it. If they can talk about it, I can talk about it too. And Paul said that men are committing shameless acts with males. This is degrading, folks. And the way our culture gussies up and glorifies homosexuality is nauseating and is self-destructive. And any homosexual that's in the sin of homosexuality, if you happen to be listening to this, which I doubt you are, but if you are, you need to get out of it before you're destroyed. You don't, God didn't make you to live like that. And I've heard, of course, that homosexuality is one of the hardest sins to get out of. It's kind of like drug addiction, you know, like cocaine addiction is really, really hard. Most sexual sins are hard to get out of because it's, like, it's an addiction. And usually disaster happens before you get out of it, like you know, Tiger Woods and his uh, sex addiction with all those women. It's more than just physical stuff. It's something psychological and it's addictive. But at any rate, homosexuality can be, you can get delivered from homosexuality just like you can get delivered from anything. I remember one time that when I did that little, a talk on homosexuality in somebody's living room and recorded it, and my friend put it up on Sermon Audio, and that audio got more hits for that one day than John MacArthur, than the great John MacArthur. And somebody, an ex-homosexual, saw the, listened to my talk, and he, either I didn't express it clearly or he misunderstood something. It turns out he agreed with me, but at the time he thought he disagreed with me, and he wrote me an email, and he was all hot and bothered. And I went back and listened to what I said, and I said, wait a minute, I think you misunderstood. And anyway, I, I engaged in a in a, a email correspondence with this gentleman, and he's got on his website what he had done when he before he got saved. He was into homosexuality, transvestitism. I can't remember what else. He, he was into every sexual sin in the world. And then he got out of it. And he was trying to tell other Christian, other people to get out of it and to follow Jesus. That made my day. And I was watching a YouTube video. A young girl, she, she, she must have been in her early 20s, maybe in high school, I don't know. But she had been engaged in a lesbian relationship with an older woman. Hadn't told her mother, of course. I don't think she had told her other friends, but she said all of her Facebook friends were lesbians and everything. And so one day she got saved and she says, I want to tell all you people out there that this stuff is wrong before God's eyes and he will judge it. And I don't care who it makes mad, even if, even if you're my previous friends. And she talked about how hard it was to get out of that homosexual relationship, but she did it. That made that day for me, too. So, yeah, people can get out of homosexuality, but they got to turn to God first and get out and get off of their idolatry. Now, notice that verse 27, that males, homosexual males receive in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. The question is, is what kind of penalty is that? Is that physical? Well, that's what happens. You know, people, homosexuals get AIDS. They, get, they have a tremendously high rate of tuberculosis. But Paul was not aware of that back then. So maybe another option was, is that they uh, received in their persons the appropriate penalty, which was spiritual darkness. They cut off the fellowship with God. That's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. I don't know if they knew about physical problems that homosexuals had back then in Paul's era, so I think that maybe the appropriate penalty is the is the is the cutting off of fellowship with God, which eventually leads to death and hell. Now notice that these homosexuals were inflamed in their lust for one another. Inflamed. Let me give you a good quote from John Gill. An exceeding great sin this is, contrary to nature, nature, dishonorable to human nature, and scandalous to a people and nation among whom it prevails, as it did very much in the Gentile world, 
and among their greatest philosophers. Even those who were most noted for moral virtue are charged with it, as Socrates, Plato, Zeno. If you read enough Socrates, boy, homosexuality is everywhere in there. And Socrates himself, it was hinted at, had a thing for a young boy. And those guys in the Greek world, it was not just homosexuality. It was homosexuality for young boys, pederasty, which even our perverted American culture has not even accepted yet. Plato, Zeno, and others. It is a sin which generally prevails where idolatry and infidelity do, as among pagans of old and among the papists and Bahamidans now. I don't know about the papists. Well, I don't know. The Catholic Church has just had horrible scandals with priests and young boys. That's homosexuality of a pederastic type sort. And Muslims are famous for homosexuality. I remember when I was in, a, in Nigeria, and people were telling me over there that the Muslims were real big on homosexuality. Anyway, we go on with the quote from John Gill, and never was it so rife in this nation in England as since the schemes of deism and infidelity have found such a reception among us. Well, if John Gill thought that homosexuality was bad in 19th century England, I wish he could live now in the 21st century and see how things are these days. Romans 1.28, and because they, these are unbelievers, did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. That's kind of summary of the whole thing. Your mind gets senseless and dark, and then you get into sexual defilement. They did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. The NIV has to retain the knowledge of God. This, of course, is referring back to Romans 1, 19 and verse 21, which we've read just previously. Verse 19, Romans 1, Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them, but they don't acknowledge it. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, i.e. knew that God existed, they do not go, did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. They did not acknowledge God. God delivered them over to a worthless mind. And this is the third time Paul has talked about God delivering sinners over to their punishment. So let's look at them. Romans 1.24, therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. That's homosexuals. Excuse me, that's people who were delivered over to sexual impurity in general, not necessarily homosexuals. And then we read in verse 26, that is why God delivered them, delivered them over to degrading passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. That's lesbians were delivered over to their degrading passions. And here in Romans 1.28, we have male homosexuals delivered over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. Well, I'm telling you, Paul is really laying down the hammer here. Verses 29, 30, and 31, Paul continues on with people who have left God, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and exchanged the glory of God for idols. Verse 29, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And basically, Paul just gives a catalog of human beings without God. And how many of us have witnessed this? Read the books, read the novels, read the newspaper, read the Internet. This is the way people are, folks. It ain't a pretty picture. Even though man is made just a little lower than the angels, of course, there's, you know, there's the noble aspect of man, too, because the image of God has not been completely erased. But along with that, you have to look at the other, and this is the other, and it's very, very bad. We need a Savior. We need salvation. And if you think you don't, you are a nitwit, a moron, a fool, as Paul has said in these passages. Now, one little point here. It says these people are full of all this evil. He's got homosexuality and murder and slander. And then he says disobedient to parents. Well, it's kind of, 
you think, well, how can disobedience to parents be as bad as all that? Well, it's not meant to be. He's not trying to put everything on an equal level here. He's just trying to list all the evil things that he can think about what sinners do. And disobedience to parents was one of those things. That was considered a very serious thing. He, he doesn't mean that he's trying to show that everyone is a sinner, so he's trying to think of every sin that he can think of so nobody can say, well, I didn't do that sin. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a murderer, so I'm not a sinner. Oh, yes, you are. So he puts a little one there. You ever been disobedient to your parents? Well, uh, yeah. That's why when I try to tell Chinese people, or, they, or people, but mostly Chinese young people, are you a sinner? Well, no, what do you mean? I say, you ever lied to your parents? Because they all do. You ever disobeyed your parents? Yeah. Well, then you're a sinner. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's putting the big sins in there. He's putting the little sins in there just to catch everybody so that people who haven't done the big sins won't be left out. So they'll be included as a sinner. Now, notice, as John Gill points out, that Paul is not talking about the average run-of-the-mill Gentile in these verses. He's talking about the best they have to offer, their wise professors and their moral instructors. Remember, he talked about claiming to be wise. They became his fools. He's talking about the philosophers and all these people who are writing about ethics. Verse 32, although they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but even applaud others who practice them. They know full well because they've got a conscience. All the preceding sins that Paul mentioned here did not destroy their conscience, as the NIV Study Bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. They've still got it. Even today, advocates of homosexual sin, orgies, throuples, throuples, whatever you call it, threesomes, all that stuff, you talk about pederasty and incest, and they'll draw back and say, I think that's a sin. My conscience bothers me about that. I remember I had a Chinese student who was a smart girl debater and she was my assistant and she gets on me about gay marriage she found out i was a christian she brought this up not me and i said no it's a sin i know it's wrong how can you say that i think they were debating that in one of the debate topics and she was actually doing pretty good you know people don't roll over me usually in a debate but she was she was giving me everything she i was having trouble let's put it that way and i didn't like it so after she worked me over pretty good for a while and i tried some futile some futile counter sallies I finally just looked at her and I said, I said, um, do you have a brother? Yes. Would you marry him? Dead silence. That girl who'd been rattling off rhetoric for a half an hour like a machine gun. Dead silence. Because she wasn't going to marry him because she thought that was immoral. And, of course, my point was, well, if that's immoral, why? If you, if you say homosexual is, is, is moral, why can't you say that marrying your brother is moral? Everybody's got a standard somewhere because they still got a conscience, no matter how much their conscience is blurred by their sin. But notice now that the people who are going to experience God's just sentence, as Paul puts it here, just sentence, condemnation, they know full well. That means they know that all this stuff is sinful and evil and that, and that people who do it deserve to die, but they do it anyway because they're so caught up in their lust. And not only they do do it, they applaud others who do it. Even if they're not doing it, they say, well, it's okay. I think it's great if you're doing it. Kind of reminds me of like Jeffrey Epstein's procurer, that woman whose name I can't remember. She'd go around and find these teenage girls that have sex with Epstein and all of his buddies. Teenage girls. She wasn't doing the sexual sin, but she was saying, right, go ahead and do it. Hey, that's great. Go ahead and do it. How about all these people? Most people will not practice homosexuality. In fact, I read somewhere that the homosexual movement realized that they were never going to get people to accept homosexuality as something they would personally do, but they thought that they could appeal to people to tolerate it as something that other people would do. 
And so then they brought out stories of persecution. Of course, homosexuals have been treated very badly. There's no question about that because most people don't. They hate the sinner as well as hate the sin, you know, whereas Christians are supposed to love the sinner and love and hate the sin. But most people, like, for example, in Atlanta years ago, about 50 years ago, they had Punch a Fag Day. And people would just find a homosexual and beat the crap out of him on a certain day, once a year. I mean, you know, that kind of nonsense. If you ever saw the movie Turin, what's the name of that Turin? What's the name of that computer guy? Invented a Turing machine. Is it Turing? Turing. Turing machine. He was a homosexual guy. Cracked the code in, in British uh, in uh, British intelligence. Cracked, cracked the German code working for British intelligence in World War II. He died of homosexuality, and they treated him terribly, and they gave him drugs that messed him up. You know, horrible stuff. And so what the homosexual movement did is they appealed to the sympathy that people had and said, see how terribly we've been treated, and therefore we want to have our sin justified and applauded by others, even though you yourself are not going to do it. Well, Paul's predicted it 2,000 years ago. It says people like that applaud others who practice them, and that's what most heterosexuals are doing today. Oh, I think it's wonderful if you want to be a homosexual. There's no problem. I don't know. When it gets down to polygamy and pederasty and incest, I wonder when these people are going to draw the line, or, they, or, or, or are they going to just continually go round and round the drain, round and round the toilet hole they go, as our culture disintegrates into nothingness. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Romans 1. We'll take up Romans 2 in the next chapter. I hope you enjoyed this audio.